0: you're listening to radio activism a production of the radio cafe i'm your host mary charlotte in today's podcast we're going to be talking to trevor potter and if you're a television watcher you may remember him as the man who helped stephen colbert start his own super PAC, making a better tomorrow tomorrow on the colbert report trevor potter is one of the country's leading attorneys on government ethics campaign finance reform election law and participatory democracy He's former commissioner and chairman of the U.S. Federal Election Commission, and he's founder and president of the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C. In preparation for this conversation, I got to do something which I think of as one of the greatest benefits of my line of work, and that is I got to totally geek out on the subject of campaign finance reform. This is one of those political issues that's not perhaps emotionally riveting, like the demise of polar bears or the rights of immigrants or clean water. Those are things that you can see and feel and relate to, and they may affect you directly. And campaign finance is different. You don't really see the transfer of money. You don't really know when you watch a campaign ad what the politics and deep history are behind it. But I think you can make a very good argument that this issue, campaign finance, is the mother of all other issues in the sense that how political campaigns are paid for, who pays for them, and what those people want in return drive pretty much everything else. Trevor Potter is a conservative Republican, but his ideas sound very nonpartisan to me, which I find refreshing in our age of hyper-partisanship. I'm going to ask you, dear listener, for your indulgence. Please bear with us through a little bit of geekiness. I think you'll find it's worth it because, well, because it's important for citizens to actually understand this devil in the details and the history of how we got to this place we are now, where a very small number of people have inordinate power over who is in elected office and what they do there. Welcome, Trevor Potter, to Radioactivism.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be
0: here. It's great to have you. This is incredibly interesting material that you're working with and incredibly important to, I think, all of us, depending on how much we really think that each of us is participating in our own democracy. One of the things that you talk about is that while it's very hard to find anything that almost all Americans agree on. One thing that almost all Americans agree on, 87%, is that a person with a lot of money shouldn't have any more political influence than a person with no money. That means almost all Democrats and Republicans believe in changing the way elections are financed. Does this nearly unanimous agreement carry carry over to both sides of the aisle in Congress?
1: I don't think it carries over to either side of the aisle in Congress, but certainly not to both sides. To me, that's a very interesting number, that 87% believe that a person with no money or limited money should have the same political voice, that wealthy Americans should not have a dominant role in our elections. I think that comes from the tradition we have of one person, one vote, the idea that in a democracy in a system of elections everybody has the same power in the voting booth but that is of course totally the opposite of the way campaign finance works and it's certainly the opposite of the way the Supreme Court has thought about campaign finance one way to phrase what you've just said is that there should be a level playing field that candidates should have the same amount of money, citizens should have the same voice. And the Supreme Court, 40 years ago, said that that was contrary to our Constitution, contrary to our notions of the First Amendment and free speech. So you have this supermajority of Americans saying that they would like a system which the Supreme Court has told us not only can we not have, but is an impermissible reason for government to regulate money in politics.
0: What happened 40 years ago?
1: 40 years ago, the Supreme Court really for the first time looked at a system of campaign finance regulation that had been adopted by Congress in the wake of the Watergate scandal. So it was called the Watergate reforms. It was the Federal Election uh, Campaign Act of 1974 that established a new set of ground rules, prohibiting corporate contributions, limiting individual contributions, limiting expenditures by individuals, independent expenditures, limiting how much a candidate could spend of their own money, establishing a public funding system, establishing the Federal Election Commission. It's the basis for the regulatory system we have at the federal level for money in politics coming out of the Watergate scandal. And 40 years ago, in a case called Buckley v. Valeo, there was a challenge to that new law. Uh, it was upheld by the lower courts, who said clearly needed, makes sense to us, went to the Supreme Court, and they threw out portions of that Reform Act.
0: Now, that Reform Act was almost brand new at the time.
1: It was. And so the court, for the first time, was looking at questions of how the First Amendment to the Constitution that says government shall make no law affecting the freedom of speech, how that intersected with the regulation of money in politics. And of course, to start with, the Constitution doesn't say that Congress shall make no law uh, affecting the spending of money in politics. Uh, talks about free speech, but what the Supreme Court said in the Buckley case, and Buckley was Senator James Buckley of New York, a conservative senator, meaning he ran on actually on the conservative party ticket. Uh, he was the brother of the famous conservative columnist William F. Buckley. He challenged the law along with others, uh, but his name was on the case saying it violates the Constitution because it affects my ability to speak, it affects the ability of supporters of mine to speak by giving me money. The court in that case addressed for the first time whether limits to candidates were constitutional on how much someone can give a candidate as a contribution and whether limits on how much an individual can spend are constitutional. And Congress was addressing there a couple of concerns. One was that the Nixon campaign had received million-dollar contributions. And that was just a great shock when that came out, the idea that someone would give that much. The question was, what were they buying? And it was seen as inappropriate in a democracy for one individual to potentially purchase that much political power by making a contribution to a candidate for president. So there was the size of contributions. There was also a concern that elections were getting more and more expensive. And that meant candidates had to raise more money. Who were they going to raise the money from? People who wanted something from them. And so there was a concern with the potential corruption of having large contributions and expensive races. And Congress's solution to that was to say, we're going to limit how much you can give to a candidate to a thousand dollars, that's the maximum per election, Uh, and we are going to limit how much an individual can spend on their own in an election to the same thousand dollars. And that also applied to wealthy people who wanted to run for office. They could only spend a thousand dollars of their own money. Uh, That was partly uh, so that wealthy people couldn't buy office, if you had someone who was a school teacher and they were running against a millionaire and the millionaire could spend an unlimited amount of their own money, Congress thought that would potentially mean that only wealthy people could run for office, which they thought was a bad idea. And they thought everyone should have a chance to run and be hurt. So those, the, the laws established in that Reform Act went to those basic questions. Can you limit contributions? Can you limit expenditures? Uh, as well as establishing a presidential public funding system and an enforcement mechanism.
0: And these things really go to the heart of some fundamental questions about democracy, which is, should it be run by elites or should everybody have a say in the process and have a chance at political power being able to run for office and so on?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was doing a debate, uh, a public conversation a couple years ago, with a woman who was a member of the British House of Lords. So she was a peeress, She was a baroness. And she was talking about her system, and I was talking about the American system. And she completely threw me in the opening line. Uh, Grant, this is an 85-year-old woman, so I was trying to be polite and gentle. And it turned out She was tough as nails and not being gentle with me. But her opening line was, you know, we just don't understand your system. Because we think that everyone in society should have a chance to run for office, and that everyone, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, has something they may be able to contribute. And you only want the very wealthy to run for office. And I thought to myself, the ironies of this are so huge. We're a country created by people who opposed a wealthy aristocracy, who wanted to make sure that government was open to people of all walks of life, who designed it to prevent wealthy Americans from taking over the government. And yet we're the ones who've ended up with a system where money makes a huge difference in who can run for office and who's in office and how they get there. And the British have ended up with a much more democratic, small d, system that really is open to people of talent, regardless of whether they have personal means or not. They've ended up with strict contribution limits, expenditure limits, and money does not dominate the British system uh, of elections. So it, it seemed to me that there, there was, it really was surprising that her point was so accurate.
0: Very interesting. We're talking to Trevor Potter. We were talking about what happened 40 years ago. We can come back to that and then and then Citizens United. But it's over 100 years ago since President Theodore Roosevelt said after his election that all contributions by corporations to any political committee or for any political purpose should be forbidden by law. So this tradition and this set of arguments goes way back.
1: Yeah, that's... The piece of history there is that we have had now for, gosh, 130, 40 years, a ongoing debate in this country about the correct role of money in politics, in elections, or put differently, the limits that government should impose, can impose on money. It came about because originally, when the founders created the Constitution, congressional districts were pretty small, and you basically knew the candidates. They were your, your neighbors, if not your friends, and they would speak publicly and you would go hear them. So it was very much person-by-person retail politics. That began to change as the country got bigger, and then as we saw the Industrial Revolution, we moved from an agrarian society where there were not huge disparities in wealth, to a situation where you suddenly had what became known as the plutocrats, but whether they were the railroad barons or the titans of Wall Street, you had people who had amassed, through the corporate form, uh, enormous sums of money at a level not seen before in American society, and this began to happen after the Civil War. So you got great wealth, And people with great wealth began to use it to achieve great political power. And back then, senators were chosen by state legislators. And what you began to see is people buying Senate seats, In some case literally buying Senate seats. The famous case in Montana where a mining baron decided he wanted to become a senator, and so he offered $10,000 a vote to the state legislature, and became a senator. Uh, So out of that came political power being exercised by corporations because they had money and they could finance candidates. And that's what Roosevelt was reacting to. He was saying that, and there are a number of speeches where he talked about this, that people of average means, what we would call Main Street America, should feel that they had a say and, and a decisive say in, in as citizens in how the country was governed. And they didn't have that sense if senators were being bought and policies were then uh, being introduced and adopted by the government based on what the corporations wanted. At one stage, Standard Oil was based in New Jersey and the senators from New Jersey were known as the senators from Standard Oil because the corporation had that dominant a role in the selection of senators. And so what Roosevelt embodied was this reform tradition or populist tradition that said corporations should not have a dominant role in our political life. He, of course, also led trust-busting, And his view was that corporations should not have, a small group of corporations should not have a dominant role in our economic life either, that that would lead to political power, and all of that was a threat to democracy. So he sought not to remove wealth, but to diffuse it through the antitrust laws, break up the huge trusts or combinations, as they were known, uh, so that there would be more competitors in the economic marketplace and then to divorce that corporate political wealth from political power.
0: He didn't get what he wanted.
1: You know, he did for a while. Uh, The ban on corporate contributions to parties was in effect for the 20th century. It was violated on occasion. That was part of the Watergate scandal is that it was discovered that corporations and their executives using corporate money had secretly given to the Nixon reelection campaign, but people went to jail for that. Uh, There were felony convictions for having violated that law. That's what made the Supreme Court's more recent decision in Citizens United a surprise, is that you had this long history of banning, what was seen as banning corporate money in politics. Now, technically, the original ban was on corporate contributions to party committees and candidates. Because that was a world where you didn't really have what we now call independent expenditures. The idea that corporate money could be used to directly buy a radio or television ad, which, of course, didn't exist then.
0: We're talking about Roosevelt's time.
1: Correct. Back then, the ban was on contributions. That was changed later to be a ban on both corporate and union expenditures, including these independent expenditures. And that's what the Supreme Court took up in and overturned in in Citizens United. But I think it's safe to say that the Citizens United Supreme Court was simply a court much friendlier to corporations and their role in our political life than was Theodore Roosevelt and the early reformers.
0: One of the points that you make about the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, which I thought was very interesting, was that this was the first Supreme Court in a long time that didn't have a single justice who had held elected office. There had been governors and senators and so on on the Supreme Court previously, most recently Sandra Day O'Connor. And the Citizens United decision therefore failed to take into account the realities of how elections are actually conducted. There's like a theory that really clashes with the on the ground practice. I think
1: one of the big changes on the court has been the lack of practical political experience. Um, As you note, there's been a tradition of having people come from political life to the court, and that has given the court a real-world quality to it that a number of commentators have noted is lacking when you have justices who are drawn from a handful, Harvard, Yale, predominantly, law schools, so Ivy League law schools, who have then gone on to be either government administrators in the Department of Justice or straight to the federal bench as judges, and then are elevated to be justices. So they haven't been part of the political give-and-take. I think that's particularly important when you're talking about the court looking at the regulation of money in politics, because if you don't understand how it actually works, I think you have a very abstract intellectual view of this rather than a practical one. One of the things that Justice O'Connor brought to the court was her experience as a state legislator, having been an active member of the Arizona legislature and the majority leader, and having to campaign, raise money, cut legislative deals, enact legislation. So she knew how the system worked and what the dangers were. And she was the key deciding vote in upholding the McCain-Feingold reform laws. It was a 5-4 decision, and Justice O'Connor was effectively the fifth vote. She actually changed her vote from an earlier case to be in the majority there. And my own sense is she did that, not necessarily that she would have written the law that way, but she understood the problem that Congress was trying to address and deferred Congress's chosen solution. She knew there was a problem. This is what they chose to do, and she understood the importance of avoiding corruption, the appearance of corruption, and enabling the legislature to work. She then left the court. She was replaced by yet another justice who had an academic background and had never served in elected office. So you had nine of them who had never served in elected office, and that's when the court began to undo the McCain-Feingold reforms
0: so citizens united was also a 5-4 decision basically what happened was that the court ruled that money was a form of speech that it was okay for corporations and unions to give unlimited amounts of money not to campaigns themselves but to independent organizations and one of the things that you've pointed out many times is that that kind of independence is a pipe dream.
1: Right, so this goes back to the buckley Valeo case we were talking about. What the court did there was to say that Congress can regulate contributions to candidates because it has the potential to corrupt or may have the appearance of corruption. If you give someone a million dollars, uh, That's too much money, people can reasonably expect that they're getting government action for it. But the court said it's different if someone is making an independent expenditure, if they're spending their own money to talk about a candidate, and they're not doing it in coordination with the candidate or the party. And the court said that's much more like free speech. If you give someone a contribution, then the person you gave it to decides how to spend it. And so you have this symbolic act of giving them the money, but it's not really your speech because you give it to the candidate and then they say what they want. So they said that's a more attenuated version of free speech and it can be limited. But if it's your money and you are choosing what to say and you are saying it, then that's really core speech. And in those circumstances, they said the government can't regulate what we now call independent expenditures, the spending of your own money to speak on issues of interest to you, including saying, vote for Smith or defeat Jones. So that was the big legal distinction that came out of the Buckley case. And the court basically said, it isn't the government's role to level the playing field, to ensure that everyone is heard to do the things that 87% of Americans think ought to be done to have a fair election. They said, no, government can't do that. That's not right. That would violate the free speech provisions in the First Amendment as applied to people making independent expenditures. But in the Buckley case, no one challenged the ban on corporate independent speech. For that, you had to wait almost 40 years, 35, 4 the Citizens United case and there a non-profit corporation came into the court and said basically we want to be able to take corporate money from big corporations and we want to be able to talk about candidates and the Supreme Court with Justice O'Connor having left and Justice Alito having arrived the balance shifted and there were now five justices who said corporations have the same First Amendment right to speak about politics and candidates that we said individuals did. That there really isn't a difference in for those purposes between a citizen speaking and an artificial corporation speaking. And that has led to the phrase, corporations are people.
0: Right. And that has led to a situation that... Colbert brought out so eloquently on his Colbert report some years ago that is super PACs and dark money and I'm going to try to explain this very concisely and tell me if this is correct. Let's say a fellow named Trevor wants to run for Senate and his campaign is called Trevor for Senate and he can only receive campaign contributions from individuals but not from corporations and unions. Then there's another Political Action Committee or Super PAC called Trevor for America. And they can receive unlimited amounts of money from corporations and unions and wealthy donors and anybody else, but they have to disclose it. And then there's a third entity, which is a nonprofit 501c4 political nonprofit called Truth and Beauty. And they can receive all the contributions they want, not disclose who their donors are, because they're a nonprofit, give 49% of the money they raise to Trevor for America, and they disclose that the donor is truth and beauty. And so, you know, the Acme Dynamite Company or whoever can give to this third, what's called dark money entity, And that is the picture of elections in America today. Is that right?
1: It's a very good summary of where we are now, where we have ended up. What's interesting about that is that if Justice Kennedy were talking to you, the justice who wrote the Citizens United decision, he would say, we didn't say any of that in Citizens United. We said corporations can make independent expenditures. We didn't talk about super PACs. We said two things that are really important, and both of the principles they enunciated in the Citizens United decision are being violated by the system we now have, which you've just described. The first is that all the money will be disclosed. Justice Kennedy says, disclosure is not only fully constitutional, but it's important. Citizens need to know As citizens, who is paying for the advertising they're seeing? Who is speaking to them? Because, he said, voters make judgments based upon it. The identity of the speaker is part of the message that's conveyed. If you're looking at an ad attacking a candidate, you care whether it is from the tobacco companies or from the American Heart Association. If you are looking at an ad talking about energy policy, you care about whether it is paid for by a coal company or an environmental company. Depending on where you are, you may have a different view of it. If you are a West Virginia coal miner and the coal companies are paying for the ad, that ad has more power, more resonance, because you know who's paying for it. So Kennedy says it's important to democracy to know who is paying for this speech, that the, the identity of the speaker should be public. He also says that In Citizens United, we are, for the first time, allowing corporations to spend money in elections, and shareholders deserve to know how their corporations are spending the money. They can decide whether they approve of that or not. Now, in some ways, that's a fairly naive statement because we don't really have a system of corporate governance that gives shareholders any say in how corporations spend the money, but Kennedy was assuming that the shareholders would know how the money's being spent by the corporations and citizens as voters would know who is paying for these political communications. And just stopping there for a moment, that's not what we have. Because of what we call right. dark money and the system you've described, we now have ways to spend money in elections with basically secretly. We see the money being spent, but we have no idea whose money it is, whose message it is, what they're trying to do with it.
0: Because they all give their groups really innocuous names.
1: Right, and in fact, there's a really interesting study that has come out that has said the more innocuous the name, the more effective the ad. Because, again, if you know, if you can figure out that it's a Republican or a Democratic group, then if you're of the opposite party, the ad doesn't have any particular persuasion but if it's a Americans for a Better Tomorrow right. group and you don't know who that is, you tend to listen to the ad. So it is more powerful if it's secret, it also enables people to lie to the public. So you have groups saying, you know, we're in we're in favor of cleaner air and they're out there paying for advertising to promote policies that would give us more pollution. You can't see behind that screen and that was not um that's the opposite of what the Supreme Court said would happen after Citizens United. The other piece of Citizens United that you've touched on is the existence of these outside groups. Remember that in Citizens United, they had a nonprofit corporation saying, we want to talk, even then, they wanted to talk about Hillary Clinton. It was 2008, and they wanted to talk about her as a candidate. And we should be able to do that. So when the court said yes, what they were faced with was a incorporated entity that wanted to run public communications ads that would say paid for by the corporation. What we've ended up with is these ads that say paid for by a super PAC no one has ever heard of or paid for by a non-profit, C4, C6, with an innocuous name with corporate money behind it and we don't know which that money is. And the court's theory was... They could do that because it was totally independent of candidates and parties. So it wasn't going to corrupt anything. It was, again, going back to Buckley, it was that individual speech, someone speaking on their own behalf with their own money. So what the court, I think, envisioned is an ad that said, we're General Electric, and we think you should vote for candidate. Why? Because they'd be good for the economy. What we've ended up with is these groups that have an innocuous name. We don't know who's paid for them. And contrary to what the court assumed would happen, or really what the court said was required to happen to give them this constitutional right to spend corporate money, they are coordinating with candidates.
0: Right. So you've got a group called Trevor for Senate and a group called Trevor for America. And the head of Trevor for America, which according to the justices who wrote on the majority of Citizens United, thought would be a completely independent group. In fact, Trevor for America is run by your cousin.
1: It's run Trevor's by Trevor's cousin. It's run by Trevor's cousin. It's run by Trevor's former campaign manager. The fundraising for the group is headed by Trevor's current fundraiser, uh, who raises it for both groups. Trevor has thanked the donors for this independent outside group for their contributions, has assured them that it's really important. So you've ended up in this bizarre world where we have a legal limit on what you can give to a candidate, which is still reasonably low in the scheme of things. It's $2,700 more than most Americans would ever give to a candidate, but a limited amount of money. But then the other pocket of the candidate's code effectively is this super PAC, Trevor for America, and then it has this C4 or C6, both of those groups, the super PAC and the nonprofit, can take unlimited amounts, and unlimited amounts from corporations as well as individuals, and then spend them for the same advertising that the candidate's own campaign can spend it for, and looking as if they are part of the same operation and that's where it is so different than what the court thought was going to happen, expected would happen. They were saying these are completely independent, non-coordinated outside groups and instead everyone understands and candidates actually refer to them as my super PAC. Everyone understands that they can give the 2700 to the campaign and then an unlimited amount to the super PAC and then if they want to be anonymous, another unlimited amount to the nonprofit group. All of it is for the same purpose. All of it is engendering the same gratitude from the candidate and the same danger of corruption that 40 years ago concerned us. You can make the million-dollar contribution. You just make it to the super PAC, or if you don't want anyone to know, you make it to the nonprofit. The candidate can know, and undoubtedly will know, because it's the same team of people. They will know it got made. You can tell the candidate you made the million-dollar contribution to the nonprofit. So we've ended up in this Alice in Wonderland world where everything is upside down, and what the Supreme Court thought would be the reality is not where we are.
0: So they thought there would be full disclosure. There's no disclosure. They thought there would be independence. There's no independence. They thought there would be no corruption or appearance of corruption. There's both. They also if I understand correctly, thought that the law would be administered by the Federal Elections Commission, and that hasn't happened either.
1: Yes, we've ended up in this situation partly because of the failure of the Federal Election Commission, really the collapse of the commission. The commission was set up with a group of commissioners that were required by law to be not more than three of any one party. So there's six commissioners, and the law says you can't have a majority be either Democrats or Republicans. Well, what that could lead to is a deadlock, where you have three Republicans voting one way and three Democrats voting another way. When I was there, that almost never happened. I think it happened once in the five years I was there, and that was basically by accident, meaning we didn't know we were going to end up with a, a split.
0: But you at that time, when you were on the commission, people were voting on the merits of the case, not party loyalty or perceived party affiliation.
1: That was certainly my view. My, you know, my view was once you're a commissioner, your obligation is to the the country, the law, and not to your party. Um, I, I think some of my fellow commissioners would disagree, would have disagreed with that at the time, and would have said, no, we're basically here as representatives of our party. But even so, they would have said, of course we're supposed to make the law work, it's just we are here to make sure that it is not used unfairly as an instrument against our party by the other side. So there would be a lot of discussion at the commission where someone would say, let's say a Democratic commissioner, would say to me, I think you're right on this, I think my guy, the Democratic candidate who has a complaint before the commission, someone has accused them of doing something impermissible, the Democrat would say, I think my guy has broken the law, and I'm going to vote with you on this, because I agree you're right. However, when a Republican comes up who's done the same thing, you had better vote with me on it. So it was a recognition that commissioners came with a party label, but our job was to ensure the law was enforced fairly against both sides.
0: And it pretty much worked.
1: And it did work. We almost all was compromised. Very rarely were there true partisan disagreements that we didn't work out, and the law was effectively enforced. In fact, I think we were more vigorous at that time uh, than the commission had been before, partly because I came in determined to make the commission work better, and we did a number of internal reforms in terms of prioritizing investigations and finding ways to deal with the most important cases before us and move them along. What's changed now is you have the same structure, three Republicans and three Democrats, but they are not compromising. And instead, they're deadlocking. And the law says you have to have a majority of the commission, which means four of the six votes, to do anything to hold a meeting, to open, which is the key here, to open an investigation, to make a finding, to subpoena a document, to ask for information. And what's happening again and again and again is the commission is deadlocking 3-3 to even begin an investigation. There has been a recommendation from the professional staff, the general counsel's office, that said, based on the complaint, it looks as if there may have been a violation of law, And we should look into it. We should ask questions and find out if there was. And the commission deadlocks. Three commissioners, and they have been the three Republicans over the last four or five years, say no. We don't think we have enough evidence. We're not going to let you ask any questions. There has been a fight on the commission even to ensure that the professional staff does not look at the public record in determining whether there is enough evidence to have an investigation. So commissioners have attacked staff saying you can't read the newspaper. They've gone bananas. Well, they have taken, I think, an ideological view to an extreme. And that view is they really don't think that these laws ought to be enforced. They take a very narrow view of the responsibilities of the commission, that they would not have passed these laws. They are I think philosophically opposed to them, and they have found a way very effectively to shut down the enforcement mechanism. And so we've seen this particularly on the disclosure side, where the law on its face, what the court was looking at in Citizens United, was a law that said if you spent money on an advertisement mentioning a candidate, you had to disclose who the donors were. Three commissioners took the view that's not actually what the law said. That, that it instead was only it meant, they said, only if the people who funded the ad gave for the purpose of funding the ad, which is not what's actually in the law. But that enabled them to say there's no proof they gave for that purpose. There's one ridiculous case where there was a super PAC funded almost entirely by Sheldon Adelson. I mean, $39.5 million of the $40 million came from Sheldon Adelson. There was a complaint filed when the New York Times discovered this saying, well, the PAC never reported who its donor was, and they're required to by law. And the three Republicans said, not really, because we don't know that Sheldon Adelson paid for that ad in whatever state it ran because they had $500,000 that could have come from somewhere else. And therefore, the PAC did not have to disclose Sheldon Adelson, its almost entire donor, as a supporter. So that's the sort of battle that's happened at the commission that has left it really unable to enforce the laws as passed by Congress.
0: So it's basically the same kind of Republican obstructionist politics that you have in Congress on what is supposed to be a bipartisan enforcement mechanism that's not even... I mean this is outside of Congress.
1: Well this is an I think unfortunate recent development and I should be clear here that I was appointed as a Republican by a Republican president so the first President Bush appointed me I had been one of the lawyers for his campaign I believed that my job at the Commission was to enforce the law fairly against both sides uh, and to ensure that that is how the Commission operated. Since then There has been a change. Traditional Republicans supported the Watergate reform laws. They supported campaign finance limits. I worked and helped Senator John McCain when he was passing the latest reform law, the McCain-Feingold law, which had a significant body of support from Republicans in the House and the Senate, or it wouldn't have passed. That movement within the party, what I would call the Theodore Roosevelt reform tradition really has been beaten down. On this issue in particular, I think the Republican Party leadership in Washington and at the Republican National Committee has now changed its tone and has become anti-reform, what they would say is anti-regulation, but they oppose disclosure. They do not want the existing law to work, which is why the three Republicans on the commission have been deadlocking. And in Congress, they don't want to pass any legislation that would clarify the law or give us the disclosure the Supreme Court said we had. I think that is a short-sighted move largely generated by the, the thinking that Republicans benefit more than Democrats from secret spending, that corporate spending is more likely to be Republican and for Republicans, and that if corporations had to actually tell their shareholders and their customers how they were spending their money, they might not spend it. And so it's seen as, I think, a short-sighted version of Republican advantage. In this recent election, there was far more outside spending on behalf of the Democratic candidate for president than there was the Republican. So I think even as a matter of partisan politics, the Republicans may have this wrong. But certainly as a matter of public policy, I think there's a real problem with one party opposing enforcing the law or opposing what most Americans say they want, which is full disclosure of spending and limits on campaign contributions to avoid corruption and the appearance of corruption. Those are issues on which vast majority of Americans tell pollsters they, they feel strongly about and yet you have one party that is really headed off in a different direction.
0: We're talking to Trevor Potter. Let's switch gears for a moment and talk about what it actually takes to finance a campaign today for senators and representatives in Congress. What are their days like when it comes to fundraising?
1: This is one of the great problems with where we are, with what's what's become the money chase. And, And I think you can look at this whether you look at it as what's good for democracy or simply what we as citizens deserve from our elected representatives. But either way, they are literally consumed by having to raise money. That means they, quote, go to work, and what they're really doing is going to a fundraising breakfast. Then they get to their office. Then they will have a fundraising lunch often. They'll have a fundraising reception, a fundraising dinner, and you're thinking, well, that still leaves the morning and the afternoon. In fact, they will take chunks of that time and leave the Capitol because they're not allowed to fundraise on the premises of the Capitol and go to the party headquarters and put on a headset and literally dial for dollars. The um, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee put out a description of an average congressman's day to their newly elected members of Congress a couple years ago. And it said right there on the day that 40% of their time should be call time. So let me repeat, this is 40% of their work day, the time we are paying them to be members of Congress, they are off raising money for their next election entirely aside from all these other fundraising receptions. And you repeatedly have members of Congress leave saying, basically, I can't take it anymore. I'm not able to do my job because I'm spending all this time fundraising. And that is fed partly by the rising cost of campaigns, so they feel they have to keep up, certainly by the existence of these super PACs, which can come in and spend a large amount of money against them sometimes in the last moments of an election. So they think, I have to have a war chest to compete in case that happens. But also, and and this is, I think, truly a scandal, is that the leadership of Congress requires them to raise money as a condition for advancing to positions of public authority, committee chairmanships. So the committee chairmen are told they have an obligation to raise a certain amount for the party committees, for their colleagues, never mind their own election. And if they don't raise that, they will not be a committee chairman. So you have basically raising money for private gain, because that's what political parties are, in order to obtain or keep public office. And the parties enforce that by removing people if they don't raise enough money. And one of the things that has led to is that the successful fundraisers are the ones who get ahead not necessarily the successful legislators the people who understand the policy the people who are able to reach across the aisle and assemble a bipartisan coalition that is not what is valued in congress
0: there's so many problems with that in addition to what you're saying there is the problem of okay they can't advance as you're saying. If they don't raise money, they have to raise money from people who have money, which is a tiny percentage, really, of the US public who can give that kind of money. And so their constituents become donors rather than citizens. So they're a lot more likely to listen to what a donor says, or they're more likely to come in contact with a donor during the course of their day than they are with me or anybody who might be listening to this program. And On top of that, they don't really have time to govern in the first place.
1: What one of the members of the Senate said, you know, based on my interaction with the American public, and then he paused and smiled and said, by which I mean really wealthy Americans who can give me a couple thousand dollars because that's who I talk to all day long, either in fundraisers or on phone calls. So based in my interaction with that class of Americans... I would think the most important issue facing the United States today is the carried interest rule, right? which no one else has ever heard of, 99.9% of the country, but it happens to affect hedge fund managers around New York City. And that's where the money is, that's who the candidates are talking to, and that's what they're hearing from these donors and potential donors. So the point is, it warps public policy because it warps the perception that members of Congress have of what people care about.
0: If they don't have time to govern because they're busy fundraising all day, who's doing the work of governing?
1: Well, a lot of it isn't getting done. I mean, that's why we haven't, you look at Congress, you talk to former members of Congress, and they'll say, everything has changed. We don't have appropriations bills anymore. We, we used to fund the government by having a vote by Congress that said you're allowed to spend this money. Now we wrap it into a big continuing resolution, which means we don't make any specific decisions about budgets. We just say we'll keep doing what we did last year because we haven't had the time to spend together to agree on what we should be funding and what we shouldn't be funding. So, a lot of it is not getting done. What is getting done is being done because staffers talk to each other. And that creates, I think, a serious problem because A, staffers aren't elected, and B, in the real world of Washington, staffers tend to be under 30 or 35 because they're not paid very much. So they're young people straight out of college. They may have worked on a campaign or they know somebody. They come to Washington. They spend some years on the Hill writing laws without ever having been elected or knowing much, and then they go off to become a Washington lobbyist and influence the process from the outside. A couple years ago, I heard a presentation by the head of a major Washington foreign policy think tank, uh, Center for Strategic International Studies. Very respected, middle of the road think tank. And the president of this was asked what the greatest national security threat was to the United States. And this was in the context of talking about China and Russia and climate change and so forth. And he said, oh, that's easy. The answer is our campaign finance system. And (laughs) the room said, what? What do you mean? It was so unexpected. And he said, well, because all the problems I've been talking about, these geopolitical issues, he said they're solvable, but they require the attention of bright people at the highest levels of government. And those problems are not getting the attention of those people because they're off fundraising all day. And they're not talking to each other. They're not coming up with shared policies. Instead, they've left it to staffers. And the guy said, I used to be a staffer. There's nothing wrong with staffers. But they don't have the knowledge and the expertise or the authority to actually make these decisions. So important decisions affecting our national security are not being made because of this crazy push to be out raising money all the time.
0: Now, political campaigns, as you say, are very expensive. Who's getting rich? Who's losing out?
1: Well, consultants are doing pretty well, meaning the people who are pollsters, create TV ads, do focus groups, that whole crowd. The amount of money spent on elections has been increasing geometrically. Not very long ago, about four or five elections ago, it was a billion or two. National elections now, House, Senate, President, are running more like seven billion. So way ahead of the the rate of inflation. So you have money being spent on what are usually negative political ads, tearing down candidates, which is what the public hears. Money being raised by candidates who are spending all their time, by definition, with wealthy donors in most of these races that's the situation we've fallen into
0: what is to be done i mean at this point i think anybody who's listened to the program thus far might agree with the statement we no longer really have democracy of by and for the people we have something else we do have one person, one vote, I suppose, up to a point. There's even issues of voting, which we're not even going to get into right now. But if we don't really have democracy anymore because of this system, because of the all the different factors that we've talked about, we haven't even really talked about the influence of lobbyists and their role in writing legislation and their role in fundraising. It's not only staffers who are writing legislation, but lobbyists what do you do?
1: Well, I think this is a good moment to step back and look at where we are, because to start with, we've had a very unusual presidential election in which the candidate who raised and spent the most money for president, Hillary Clinton, actually lost. Now, first, that's not entirely surprising in the sense that spending the most money does not guarantee a win. And there are lots of candidates who spend more money than the other and, and lose, but it has caused people to say, well, maybe money's not so important. She raised and spent all this money and she didn't win. I'd have a couple things to say about that. One is we're talking only about the presidency, which is a very different election than House and Senate because the whole country is focused on the presidency and you have an enormous amount of press coverage and average citizens have watched three debates They watch the conventions which focus on the presidential candidates. So they actually have a lot of information about the candidates that does not come through expensive paid advertising. Totally different for House and Senate races. There, most people only get information through paid advertising. There's very little nowadays coverage in the local press about it. Uh, Certainly for the House, it's even harder. Senate candidates at least are statewide. But those House and Senate Congress are the races, I think, that are most affected by everything we're talking about. If you move to the unique situation of a presidential campaign, there are other factors. But let's look at those other factors, because one of the reasons Donald Trump was able to win the nomination is he could spend an unlimited amount of his own money. He was the only billionaire in the race. And he also was able to criticize the other candidates, saying they were beholden to the special interests, Because since they weren't billionaires, they had super PACs and they had nonprofits supporting them. So in a way, the system boomeranged against all the other candidates because as they were raising this private money and going off to interviews with Sheldon Adelson, they looked like captives of the special interests. And Trump was able to say, I'm not because I'm financing my own election. He also was in a unique situation in that he was already a nationally known... Television personality, So he didn't have to spend the same amount of money that other candidates do. And I make that point because I think one of the things we hear coming out of this election is, well, Trump won, so maybe money isn't the most important thing. And I think it certainly is still very much so and will be for Congress. And at the presidential level, the irony is that money was the most important thing for Donald Trump in the sense that he could finance his own campaign, and could attack the other candidates for not being billionaires. And we don't want to end up as Americans in a situation where a additional requirement for being president, uh, in addition to being a citizen and over 35, is you have to be a billionaire.
0: Many people have talked about getting a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And as you've discussed with people, really in the context of the legal question of like, what would that constitutional amendment say? That's tricky business in itself. It's also very hard to pass a constitutional amendment. And there are problems that are above and beyond just citizens united. I mean, the problem of the influence of lobbyists. What do you think the steps are for restoring a democracy, a republic in which Ordinary people do have political say. You don't have to be a billionaire. And if you actually win elected office, you can govern instead of fundraising all day long.
1: Well, the good news is I think there are a number of steps that can be taken that are perfectly practical and do not require a constitutional amendment. As you say that there is a move to talk about a constitutional amendment, but that is the hardest thing. It's like saying, let's start our training regimen by climbing Mount Everest. There are lots of smaller peaks you can climb first that will, I think, accomplish everything that needs to be done. If not, at the end of it, you could look at an amendment. But what we need to do is find a way to make money less dominant in elections and money less dominant in the life of members of Congress. I think there's no one single answer, but there are a number of actions that if taken together would completely, radically transform the system. Let me give you a couple of examples. You could say to members of Congress, you, like other people who have a job, actually have to come to work and do the job. And therefore, you can't fundraise during the workday. So
0: you have to punch a time clock, work eight hours a day, and not fundraise during those hours. Correct,
1: correct. You can't leave and spend your afternoon in call centers. Now, some state legislatures go further and say you can't raise money while the legislature is in session, while you're considering bills. And there's a good reason for that, which is otherwise you're about to vote on a bill affecting the insurance industry and you go off the night before to a fundraiser. And who's there? The insurance industry, giving you money, cash, before you're going to cast your vote. And there are instances where members of Congress, the United States, have sent out fundraising invitations that say last opportunity to contribute before the vote on the XYZ bill. Now, the House Ethics Committee has said, naughty, naughty, you shouldn't have done that, meaning you shouldn't have been so transparent and clear about what's going on. But that is what's happening. So I could see a situation where, and there have been proposals on this, you can't fundraise while Congress is in session, or you can't fundraise while you are in Washington. You have to do it at home. Any of those would change the culture of Congress, would free up members to actually talk to other members, to legislate, to go to committee hearings, to do what we sent them to do. So I think that that would certainly be a start. Another piece would be to say that you can't go off and be a lobbyist straight from Congress. Uh, There are restrictions on it now, but they're clearly not long enough. Uh, So I would, and the reason this is important is because otherwise, Members of Congress end up considering themselves the farm team for the lobbying industry. There are members who have literally resigned their office in the middle of their terms. One who resigned her office after she had been reelected, but before she had been sworn in for the next term. And they're doing that because they've gotten a better job, a lucrative job as a lobbyist in Washington. And the best job ought to be being a member of Congress representing the people. I don't mean to be hokey about it, but the idea that you get a promotion by leaving Congress to get paid to lobby your former colleagues is is just an embarrassment and, and I think gives members the wrong incentives. So I'd say you can't lobby for five or 10 years after you've left Congress. I would broaden the definition of lobbyist to make it clear that it includes everything you do to influence legislation telling the other lobbyists who they should talk to in addition to actually physically going up because otherwise people get out of those restrictions. So you do those two things and you say well then how are members going to finance their campaigns? And this I think is the harder reform but a very important one and that is to have some alternative way for members to raise money. Let them still raise money if they choose to Uh, under the system that says you can get money from individuals at up to $2,700. But give them an alternative source of funding. We used to have, for presidents, a working system of public funding so that candidates could run for president without having to raise a vast amount of, of private money. That's still on the books, but nobody uses it because they discovered they could raise so much more private money than the public system was going to give them. Uh, The first president to win without the public funding system in recent years was Barack Obama, and now everybody else has, has followed that. But there are proposals being tried in states now for what are called democracy vouchers, which is every registered voter receives a voucher that is worth $50 or $100, so not a vast sum, but real money. And that can be given to any candidate or any party committee so that when members of Congress are running, when candidates are running, they could go to the hedge fund people in New York and try to get money. But they could also go home and have a twofer. They can campaign among the people who are actually going to be voting and at the same time raise money. Uh, John McCain says that when he first ran for office, he raised money by going to barbecues in his district, which charged $25 a head, but he met the voters and raised money. We need to find a way to get back to that, where voters are reconnected with the electorate, the people they are supposed to be representing. So I think a system where every registered voter has in their pocket the ability to fund a candidate or several candidates through this sort of citizen voucher. Couldn't be used for anything else, but they could give it to a candidate. Would change the dynamic and reconnect members of Congress with actual voters.
0: Are there any strategies for actually getting Congress, which is so gridlocked right now, to do this? I mean, nobody likes to police themselves. Nobody likes to make laws that limit themselves. Although, I mean, if I were in Congress, I could imagine that it would be kind of a liberation to be liberated from that fundraising, but like any chance or any strategy for making those kinds of things happen on a national level? It's
1: interesting you would use the word liberation because that's exactly what members say when they announce they're not running for reelection. They say, I feel liberated. I don't have to spend all those hours on the phone begging for money from strangers. Instead, I can actually think about public policy and legislation. I'm convinced if there were an anonymous vote that members could change the system without the leadership knowing how they were voting, there would be an overwhelming majority in favor of changing the system. Members don't like the system as we have been describing it. They know it means that they're not giving their best to the job, but they don't see at the moment a way around that. There are proposals, but I think there's going to have to be a push from the grassroots on these specific issues. We're already seeing it at the state level. In this last election one of the more interesting results was that the state of South Dakota, not exactly a liberal hotbed, passed a serious reform law that established a state ethics commission, that dealt with these issues of coordination and said these campaigns really need to be independent, had a strong disclosure provision in it, and had this citizen funding voucher. Now that's being attacked in the courts. The group I had, the Campaign Legal Center, is already defending that in court. And I think you can expect that reforms like that will be hard fought by people who don't like the idea of changing the system. But we need to do that locally and at the state level while we're waiting for the opportunity to do it in Congress.
0: You were talking about South Dakota. You're here visiting New Mexico, and you've looked at our system of state government. We've been trying for some time to create an ethics commission. What's your take on New Mexico and how we could improve our own democracy here?
1: I think there's there's some real opportunities to move towards greater transparency in New Mexico and a, a more rigorous system of enforcing ethics rules at the moment. There's relatively little disclosure when members of the legislature have to disclose their interest. They do it in broad categories by saying income from agriculture without being at all specific about what that is. So you don't know if that's they're actually farming or they're a consultant to Monsanto. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have to have, I think s- most states have, an ethics commission that's an external enforcement agency that would make sense for New Mexico to adopt. Uh, So you'd have greater transparency, some sort of an enforcement mechanism. New Mexico is one of the states where there are cities that have various forms of public financing. Santa Fe does, Albuquerque does. And that's something I think the legislature could look at more broadly.
0: Tell us a little bit more before we go about the work of the Campaign Legal Center.
1: I'm glad you asked, because we have a, a full docket the Campaign Legal Center was started about 15 years ago and its focus is defending the public interest through the courts, through legislatures, in the areas of campaign finance reform, voting rights, redistricting, lobbying reform, ethics reform. So the general area of how to make government more responsive, more efficient for voters. And we file briefs in court defending laws. We advise legislatures who ask for our help on what has been found to be effective, what works, what doesn't work. Our goal would be to have reform laws that are clear, easy to follow, enforceable, and constitutional. And so we spend our time trying to make that happen and when laws have been passed, making sure they're upheld by the courts.
0: Are you hopeful that campaign finance the way campaigns are financed on a national level in the United States can change significantly and change soon enough to really make a difference?
1: I am. Uh, there are people who say what we need is a huge scandal, uh, and we may have one coming. But I think if you look at the unhappiness of citizens with the current system, so much of that stems from the way we finance elections. and. The focus, therefore, on finding alternative ways to do this and less corrupting ways to do it it is really uh, justified. I, I think if you look at how you could change the system to have outcomes that would more accurately reflect citizens' voices, changing the way money flows and the incentives for members of Congress and legislatures is really at the top of that list of reforms that would make a difference.
0: Trevor Potter is president of the Campaign Legal Center. They're on the web at CampaignLegalCenter.org. He's former chairman of the Federal Election Commission. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this.
0: And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to get involved, if you would like to find out more, you can go to CampaignLegalCenter.org. And there's a lot of resources there on all their issues, including campaign finance and disclosure and government ethics and redistricting and voting rights and all kinds of very important stuff, which we will also be talking about in future programs here on Radio Activism. If you want to write, please write to my email, mc at radiocafe.media, and definitely check out the website, radioactivism.net, where we will also link to the Campaign Legal Center. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.